It is Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. This is Messiah Matters number 383. Passover is upon us. We're in the middle of it. I got a new background. Things are good. My name is Caleb Hag. Hag Sameach. Hag Sameach. I'm Rob Vanoff. Half of our audience doesn't know what that means. Not to be confused with hog sandwich. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it means happy feast. We're in the middle, like Caleb said, we're in the middle of Chag uh, Hamatzot, Feast of Unleavened Bread. And uh, it is well with my soul. Yeah. Are you having a good, uh, good Passover? Can't complain. You had 50 yeah. people at... This is when I go, like go out and I go to Costco and I buy like three different kinds of lock sa- uh, smoked salmon, yeah, and uh, lots of. It's the only time of year I buy the good old Philly cream cheese. Mm. Um, oh, it's good. We we did uh, uh, what I call Machu Picchu the other night. It's matzo pizza. <laughs> yeah, you know, homemade tomato sauce with garlic and herbs. And then just like load those things up with toppings. And there, it's amazing the things we can do with bake, uh, with matzo, bake right? For, yeah, yeah. Eat it. Try to eat it while it's so hot. You're like, I don't care. I'm still gonna. Eat. I don't care how hot this cheese is. I'm eating it now. No. So I, I always, I always burn the uh, the matzo with cinnamon and sugar and butter. In the, I always burn it on accident. So I always have to have like an entire, an entire batch ready to burn that I can throw out and then do it the right way next. You've got to be careful, man. You could sear the top roof of your mouth. Yeah, uh, but that's good stuff. It is good stuff. Yeah, we got butter, brown sugar, cinnamon. Oh yes, a little yes. bit of regular sugar on there. Look at this. What's going on here? My uh, producers are going again. A lot of our uh, so I for those who don't know, I have a whole new uh, whole new look upon me, and it's taken two weeks to get this up and running. And it's well, it's taken a lot longer than that, but it's uh, yeah, it's working. We hope. Just don't breathe too hard. Something might might. <laughs> Might not work anymore. It's kind of where we're at, and that's okay. I'm I'm very happy to be where I'm at in terms of my location now. Instead of above me where I normally sit, I'm here, and I'm happy about that. So I hope it works out. And actually, this whole setup is not actually for Messiah Matters, although I think it works. Can people? Can everyone see my? Let's see. I'm I'm in reverse. Who's that? Oh, it's Spurgeon. It's Spurgeon. Spurgeon's Spurgeon back. Spurgeon bobblehead. That's right. Back with us. All right. Uh, we hope I think that everybody's... we need a, a bobblehead cam. Like, oh, that'd be awesome. Like, so he'll be somewhere else, but you have a cam on him. And then every once we get, let's just check on Spurgeon bobblehead. And then you just. Yeah, exa- exactly. You, you exactly. You have a button you press and makes it. <laughs> I could definitely do that. All right. Let's jump into it. Uh, 253-465-3205, 253-465-3205. That is our telephone number in case you forget it. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-465-3205. Uh, that's right. You can also shoot us It's like Beach an Boys Fender Stratocaster surf guitar surf guitar chords behind that yeah that's i'll I'll accept all of that 
I'm still trying to get my uh, my video right. It's not right still. Uh, it's so frustrating. Anyway, uh, chegatorresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. That's our email address. Send me emails. We will look at them. Uh, go to torresource.com for all of your hag hamatzot and counting the omer needs. It's all on the homepage right now. Uh, so go there and do that. And uh, don't forget to subscribe and like this video. Subscribe to this channel. Like this video. Okay. Uh, I've noticed that all of my fade-ins and fade-outs are gone. That's okay. I'll fix that before next show. Let's jump into our content for the day. Okay, so we, I think today is going to be a lot of uh, responding to various uh, emails that we got in between. Oh, see, this is on a loop too. Oh, so frustrating. I'm sorry, guys. Amateur hour over here. Okay, so uh, I think a lot of our show today is going to be uh, responding to emails that we've received in the past two weeks, which is totally fine. Um, these We've got some good emails. This one's from Ruben. Uh, this is on a video that we, so we cut last week's show, or two weeks ago's show, and we had a single video. And this is what Ruben comments on the video. He says, love you guys, but disagree. And this is on the name Easter whether or not the name Easter is pagan or not. Now, I had a weird comment on Twitter. Somebody asked me if I was still Torah observant. Somebody asked me if I was still, you know, pronomian essentially. And the answer is yes. So <laughs> if you think that uh, that coming against things like the notion that everything's pagan makes me not Torah observant, I'm sorry. But I this is why the show is titled History Matters. Because... When it comes down to it, we got to look at the history of things. And we can't, you know, somebody said on a Facebook post, uh, Easter is pagan, no questions asked. And I think that that really encapsulates a lot of <laughs> a lot of the uh, everything is pagan crowd. There's no questions asked. They just assume that something sounds the same or something is is a is like another thing so it must be pagan there's no questions asked there's no actual digging to figure out whether or not uh, something is pagan or not anyway I'm not saying that Ruben's in that camp but let's read the whole comment and then we'll 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 discuss he says the name or word Easter was as you both stated a word given because of the month the Pascha fell on that's true but why was that, that month given that name is the question that you guys didn't touch on, at least not in this clip. That month was given the name because it was the month of the spring goddess Yostra. Yostra uh, Istra, he spells it like four different ways, depending on the old English dialect, which means spring. That's true. It was uh, given that name because it was the first month where the spring happened. So, yeah, I'm on the same page with you. This goddess was passed down from the ancient Germanic name for the same goddess Ostara. These languages, along with many other, uh, are part of the Proto-Indo-European language, which are what we know of as ancient Aryan languages, which makes sense why they'd have the same goddess and similar name as the Mesopotamians, who also had Proto-Indo-European languages. So I do think it's a direct correlation. Okay. Let's talk about this real quick. I'm not saying that the that the name Easter doesn't come from the isn't I'm not saying it's not connected to the goddess Yostra. What I'm saying is that that name means spring. There's a difference between saying, "Hey, we're going to name a month 
Yostra because it means spring and saying, hey, there's this pagan goddess that we worship and we have this festival and we're going to, uh, we're just going to use all that stuff to make something called Easter. That's just not the case. Uh, and we see this even in the Jewish calendar and that, uh, we shouldn't call it the Jewish calendar. We see this even within the biblical calendar, right? You have pagan names attached to months in the biblical calendar, in the Bible. So are you telling me that the Bible is is using pagan uh, customs? No, of course not. This is the way that language works. The whole point is that, yeah, it might come from Eostra, but by the time it's used to refer to the month, it means spring. And so they use the word Easter. And by the way, this is only in like Germanic countries and the U.S., right? In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they still call it Pascha. So this obviously is related specifically not to a goddess, but it's related to the month name, which means spring. That's the whole point, Rob. Yeah, I mean, you, it's exactly made with that point that you have the word Pascha, which is taken from its context to mean something different for the Eastern Orthodox, right? They call it Pascha, which is an Aramaic term, Pascha from Pesach, but they don't mean Pesach. Right. So it, words drift over time. And there's, a, I mean, we could, people say, oh, we shouldn't say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You know, it's Odin's day. It's a Thor's day for <laughs> yeah, Thursday. Exactly. It's the, you could make the same point. Or January is for Janus. You know what I mean? This sort of thing. And the question is, how many people out there who say, yeah, you know, it, it's January or it's Thursday? Do they, are they pagan? Are they, are they invoking the names of deities? In people worship? in the Hebrew roots movement no, would say yes. No. <laughs> yeah. What's that? Oh. Yeah, people in the Hebrew roots movement would say yes. This is part of the everything is pagan. And by the way, then Josh. Should, then they should abandon English. Yeah, exactly. Like, they, like if you're really, if, if you were truly Hebrew roots and that was your argument, then you're undermining your, you wouldn't have the word Hebrew words roots because you'd be using Hebrew language exclusively. Right. Joshua yeah. says in the chat room, when Caleb says everything is pagan, I'm thinking of the Lego movie song, Everything is Awesome. Everything is pagan. We, yeah, need, a, so, we need a, a Weird yeah. Al. Uh, yeah, guys, ju jump on it. Jump on that. Uh, yeah, I want to hear that. That would be awesome. You can steal that idea from from Joshua in the chat room and, and make it yours. Okay. Um, anyway, so yes, do I agree it's with like, our like my, my big fat Greek wedding? Remember that? And the dad was like, every every like word could be taken back to like yeah. a Greek word. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, so we we do that with language. Language drifts with cultures and. Well, okay. Let let yeah, let's well, do this. Let's say this to Reuben. Reuben, I agree with you. I I do agree with you. The word Easter comes from is probably handed down from Yostra, which was a pagan deity. Is this why it's attached to the fe the festival or the celebration of Easter in the church? No, it's not. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever for that. That's the point. By the time that the church uh, calls their celebration Easter, it's because the word Easter means spring. And that's when the celebration of the Passover happened. And so uh, along the road of the Quattro Decimon, 
controversy. Those who decide that they are not going to celebrate the the death of Christ on the 14th of Nisan decide that they're going to celebrate the resurrection on the Sunday of the Passover. And so that's when they start calling it Easter. I don't, I mean, and it's even, it's later than that actually, but I don't have a problem with that. I don't see why anyone would. The, what what so many in the in the uh, everything is pagan camp everything is pagan uh, every what they want to do is they want to say oh see they named it Easter because there was a celebration of fertility and and everybody was worshiping the goddess Yostra and so what they did was they just took that celebration and they just uh, they just they 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 used the same iconic 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 I can't even say it icons thank you there we go. And uh, and the same celebrations, and now they just called it something else and put a little bit of Jesus into it. That's the point here is that's not why they called it Easter. Number one and number two, that's simply not the case. There's, you know, I had somebody say I I um, I posted the evidence for why Easter is pagan. Okay. I believe that there are a lot of people who think that they have evidence, but even the 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 scholars who are really honest are going to say we don't know either way, and that's going to go for. I mean, you might think one way or the other. You might think that the evidence is stronger one way or the other, but I don't think that anyone has ever found a smoking gun of oh Easter obviously comes from a pagan. I personally don't think that Easter comes from a pagan. A pagan celebration. I just don't believe that. I see the progression of uh, Passover, the Quattrodeciman controversy into the celebration of the resurrection of Christ on Sunday, and then that celebration continuing. I never, I, I don't see any evidence of them being like, oh, hey, there was a fertility goddess. We're all just going to worship that and just call it Jesus instead. That, I mean, that I, I don't see any evidence for that. Okay, should we move on? Well, one other thought just about yes. this whole uh, how words shift. In Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, Ume olam ad olam ata el. From, from forever, like from everlasting until forever, uh, until everlasting, you are el. Aleph Lamed. And it's talking to, it's a, it's a psalm unto the Lord. It's, Mo, it's, it's called Pifilat Moshe, prayer of Moses, the man of God. So this is Mo, Moses talking to the Holy One. And he says, from everlasting, me'olam, ad olam, until everlasting, ata el, you are el. Okay, well, we know that the Canaanites had a deity called el. Right. Is Moses praying to the Holy One, saying, you are the God of the Canaanites? You are the God the Canaanites worship in their texts. Like, how could Moses use that word? It's a known right. Canaanite word for a pagan deity. Yeah. I think Moses is in trouble. He's going to have a stern talking to. Well, I mean, down that, I mean, if we take that to its conclusion, I saw somebody arguing that the, that the Bible was changed. That those are not that the, that those names were only put in the Bible because they were the Babylonian names which the people inherited in Babylon. That's tr that's true, that they inherited these these uh, month names in Babylon. But the point is, is that obviously God didn't have a problem with it because it became canon. 
Right. Well, this this one isn't month names though. This is just URL. <laughs> That's funny. URL. <laughs> that is funny. Okay. Uh, hang on just a sec. So we have we have Moses a, invented the internet right there. At <laughs> yes, exactly. URL. Exactly. All right. Let's see here. Let's see if I can find a good one of these. Love is bigger gave us a super chat. No, that's wrong. Um, oh, let's try this. Let's try this. Um, if you want to add glitter to that glue you're sniffing, that's fine. But don't dump your wackadoo all over us. Weights and measures. You've been blessed. Thank you for the super chat. Um, so John, the John 17 project says, um, this is on the heels of our conversation. Okay, I agree that the name Easter is not really an issue, but what about all the, of the pagan fertility imagery in the celebration now? Uh, for instance, both the Catholic and Orthodox churches have fertility imagery in their celebrations. Separate from any pagan deity, do you see that as an issue? Um, so, once again, I think that uh, history matters here. We would need to see specific instances of of uh, a of the church saying, "Oh, look, there's uh, fertility rites uh, in a in a in a pagan ritual that we want to incorporate into our celebration." And the reason I say that is, I'm going to get so much flack for this. The reason I say that is. I see, and I, so I went and talked to an, uh, uh, what is it, a father, I guess, at the Orthodox Church, and I asked him about that. I said, you know, why do you, why is it that you think that eggs are used as, uh, as imagery with, within the celebration of Easter? And he said, that's a really good question, but the earliest thing that I can find is that uh, the church used eggs as, uh, as a symbol of, of new life. And they did that specifically because of the uh, of of the the celebration of, of Lent and um, trying to preserve things. They would hard boiled egg eggs towards the end of Lent. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not going to say that that is true. I'm not going to say that that oh, case closed. But yeah, it sounds, I, it sounds but the more fishy than eggy. But exactly. But the point is, is that that's just as good of a of a explanation as. Uh, so the entire church around the entire world decided to adopt the fertility rites of Yostra. I mean, neither one of them have, I've seen no evidence either way that either one of those stories is true. And so, I mean, there are people who are arguing that no, just because the church has used icon, uh, icons, man, why can't I say that word? Uh, just because the church has used icons that has also been used by pagans, uh, we could say that about a whole lot of different things. Uh, we could say that about the Star of David for Israel. We could say that about the cross. We could say that, I mean, there's all sorts of different images that uh, that are used uh, for evil that the church has used for good. So once again, I have no problem if somebody wants to say, well, the Easter bunny and the eggs are pagan. That's totally fine. But, and I'm just full disclosure here. I'm, my kids don't, do not participate in Easter egg hunts. Okay, that's just not something we do. We do leaven hunts. And I mean, interesting maybe. But the, the point here is that I'm not participating in these things that, that I think could, uh, could come from paganism. But the point is, is do they come from paganism? 
I still have not seen a smoking gun. Somebody's going to need to actually show evidence that this is where the church got. Just because something is like another thing or just because something is similar does not mean that that's where it came from. I mean, this is the, my, my father gives a great analogy of this. Uh, this is a, this is a, a fallacy that's used often. The grass is green. Frogs are green. Therefore, grass must be frogs. That's essentially what people are attempting to do is like one thing is like another thing or one thing has similar elements as another thing. Therefore, it must be the same thing. And to be able to say that something is another thing. So for instance, to say, okay, well, Easter eggs and Easter bunnies are clearly from the pagan worship of Yostra. If you're going to say that, okay, all we need is some evidence. So just bring some evidence that that is solid and then 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 I'll jump on board with it's for sure pagan. But I'm not positive. Now, when we look at Christmas, okay, now we now there are some things that I think I think there's some pretty big coincidences, but uh even then this is one of the reasons that I've moved to the argument of I'm not Catholic. I don't celebrate the mass. Neither did the reformers. So why would I celebrate a mass? Doesn't make any sense. Anyway, okay. Should hey, we move Kim, on? Talk about why is there an egg <coughs> on a on a traditional Seder plate? Yeah, that's a good question. Why is like, there is an that, egg should, on a? Should we? It, w would it be just as uh, coherent rationally if we just? I mean, or not coherent? Would it be? Would we be consistent to then say the rabbis also are? It's Pascha. It's the same season as Easter. Generally, same time of year. It's spring. They've got an egg. Clearly paganism. Well, this actually goes back to the who had it first. Obviously, the Jews are always going to say we had it first, right? Judaism is always going to say we had it first. The, the mission, it goes back to Moses, which we know is not true, right? So it's this, this want to bring everything. We had it first. But... You know, and that, that's a really good question. I haven't been able to actually pinpoint where the egg comes from in terms of Judaism, which makes me wonder if they if they took it from Christianity. It's like, in other we've, words, we've got it. Come on, we've got an egg too. Come we've got to, an come egg to too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the, and the thing is, is that you see, it, like it, that would make sense. To uh, I don't I I'm not going to say that this is this is how it happened or anything, but it would make sense to me if you had. If you had uh, the Christians saying we're going to celebrate new life and we're going to do that through, uh, through you know, a symbol of an egg, and then, <laughs> and then Judaism's like, oh, we had it first. See, it's and on it's our like seder Hanukkah, plate. Gifts, like yeah, we have gifts. You don't need to do Christmas. You know, we've got presents. We've got eight days of presents. <laughs> like ours is exactly, exactly. <laughs> So anyway, I'm, I'm once again, I'm, I'm not going to say that that's where it comes from, but uh, it, it is interesting. And so uh, Michael says, Levin Hunt, huh? I'll have to try that next year. So the Levin Hunt is actually Jewish See, tradition. We, we've, we've got, we hide stuff from kids too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, and I've actually wondered if this, if this actually goes the opposite way, but you know, within we hide Jewish, our egg, <laughs> like it's like it's like we hide well, egg. We have more than one egg. We hide them. 
within within Judaism, uh, it's very traditional. Now, I this is this is late, late, late tradition, but it's very traditional for the kids to uh, search out for leaven that the parents hide around the house with a candle and a feather and a bucket. Now it sounds weird, but that's that's the tradition. And the uh, the kids go and they sweep the leaven uh, with the feather into the bucket. It's very odd. Anyway, we don't do that, but that's that's the that's the Jewish tradition. So if you walk into an Orthodox home on Nissan thirteen, that's what you're gonna see. Now, who had it first? I don't know. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who had it first. I don't know if the Jews had it first or the or the Christians had it first. I think the chicken. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Had, well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Oh, that's the egg. It's a. That's it's, there. You go. That's the mystery of the egg. It's the mystery of the egg. It's a, it's a new book. You could sell hundreds and hundreds of copies. And I think I'll put my name, Doctor Robert Van. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, we won't name any names, but there have been people in the messianic movement who have just all of a sudden become doctors, uh, with without without stating where they were going to school or anything about their dissertation. They just all of a sudden have become doctor. You've been. Inch- Doctor. Doctored. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know what? It sounds like, you know, doctor would go real nice in front of my name. I'm going to be Dr. Caleb now. That's like the time that. Dr. Uh, C. Yeah. Or, hey, man, I could buy a foot of property in Scotland and become Lord Hag. All right. Um, <laughs> let's see here. Okay, let's move on. Terry writes and it says, I'm confused, brother. A lot of words and uh, not sure what was spoken <laughs> my original oh, question was that's fair when yeah exactly when was the first seder uh, okay and a simpler explanation slash answer okay the first <sighs> so this is like back in exodus the 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 real one with the blood on the this, okay so this is i'm gonna oh dude unashamed of jesus what a great dad joke this episode is Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say that that uh, the yeah I'm gonna say that the uh, the issue is not with our answer. It's actually with your question. Uh, and and the yeah, reason it's, why it's not us. It's you, dude. No. <laughs> I'm not trying to be offensive in any way, shape, or form. But uh, Terry, this the, your it your just question comes natural, Terry. The Caleb's offensiveness. So yeah, that that is true. Um, the fact of the matter is, what do you mean by Seder? Do you mean just a Passover meal? Because if that's the the case, then you're looking at the first one being in the story of the Exodus. He says, roast the lamb. That's the first Seder. If you're saying Seder in terms of the Seder that we have today, the, the traditional Jewish Seder, as it stands with four cups and a Seder plate and all that kind of stuff, well, the four cups come around in, in the Talmud. Um. And there's actually debate in the Talmud of how many cups there should be. Remember, uh, it's a branding. There's already a tradition. And then the right. rabbis take and make their own brand of it. And they sell their own brand. And then they, and, you know, this yeah. is the way you want to do it. Same thing with, with Purim, right? This, yeah, like Jews were already celebrating Purim. But the rabbis right. came along and said, we need to tell you how to really do this right. Right. And and, and it's progressive, right? And it's progressive. So I mean, for instance, we see the four cups within the within the the Talmud, but you don't have the Seder plate show up until later. 
And then the elements on the Seder plate, right? And and we can trace some of those elements back to the actual Passover itself, right? So for instance, the lamb is is roasted in bitter herbs. And so the rabbis say to put bitter herbs and we're supposed to eat bitter herbs. But then you have other things that clearly come from the Roman date nun. So for instance, the tradition of, if, if you go through a traditional uh, Passover Seder from an Orthodox perspective, there's going to be times when they'll say, okay, now we're going to lean on one, you know, lean on one elbow because we're, we're supposed to recline at table because we're no longer slaves or freed people. This is just a, they're just taking the, the Roman date nun of reclining at table and they're giving it a meaning. That's it. So when did they do that? Well, they probably did that once the temple falls and they're trying to maintain some of these traditions. But it could also be that they're looking at the New Testament scriptures and saying, okay, let's let's say that we had these first. You know, Christ there's, reclined, there's Christ reclines example, a table. Caleb. Another yep. example is uh, Hebrew letter mysticism from the script that has emerged, you know, for the, right. what we call the Aramaic script, right? The, oh, look at the Aleph and all the different things that designed are, are um, said to be like mysteries of these letters, but they're right. not, there's, this is Aramaic script. This is not the script that the Torah, you know, that the ancient Hebrews used, but yet they adopt a new thing and then they give stories about the new thing. Right. Yeah, it, it, we can see it in, in a lot of different registers. So uh, Sean asks, do you guys have lamb at your Passover supper? Uh, there was there was beef at ours, but we also somebody else brought lamb. We make sure to say this is, and I literally say this at every Passover Seder, this is not the Passover lamb. Right. What yeah. you're going to eat is not the Passover lamb. Exactly. So I don't have a problem with it. I know some people do. That's fine. Whatever works. Okay, should we move on? Sure, let's, man. L- let's do it. Okay, Alexander writes in. This past week, I was catching up on the past couple episodes, and I really enjoyed the discussion on First Corinthians and the different perspectives on fellowship meals, Passover, communion, etc. I just had a thought based on the interpretation on First Corinthians 11 that you shared, specifically that Paul's instruction was mainly regarding everyday fellowship meals, and not focusing on the Passover meal in chapter 11. If this is the case, then it seems that Paul was giving instructions on how to reappropriate existing cultural expressions, i.e. mealtimes, to the community of faith. The cup before and after the meal were dedicated to idols before they came to Christ, but now these are redirected to honor Christ. Is this what you think is the case? Okay, let's stop right there because the rest of his question is going to essentially focus on if we think it is the case. I think that the cultural aspects of the date nine in the first century um, were cross-cultural. And what I mean by that is that we see these same exact customs used at Qumran. So uh, they break bread before and say a blessing before the uh, before the the meal, and then they uh, and and then they dedicate a ceremonial cup of wine uh, 
okay? And then they, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think they actually use wine a second time in their meal. Anyway, the point is, is that uh, what this does is, I think what they're doing is, it shows that the meal is more than just sitting down to nourish, but it is fellowshipping with other people of like mind. It is a for, so we have to remember that eating together was a form of worship in the first century. And so this means that it didn't matter whether or not you were worshiping this God over here or you were worshiping the God of Israel or you're worshiping that God over there. If you were sitting down with other people and acknowledging that the meal was something that was a form of worship, this is how you started it. Now, this could be likened to something like, okay, at, at a wedding, let's, we'll, we'll use a little bit more abstract and then we'll, a little bit more solid. So at a wedding, there's always the toast, right? Um, whether it's the, the father, the bride, or the best man, right? Or sometimes there's multiple toasts, right? People will stand up and they'll give a toast to the health and the wealth and the well-being of the bride and the groom. This is a tradition. So that tradition, it doesn't matter if you're doing it at a Hindu wedding. It doesn't matter if you're doing it at a Christian wedding. It doesn't matter if you're doing it at a Jewish wedding. No one sees this as being specific to a God. It's just a tradition that, that we do. In the same way, in America, we eat with fork and knife. Nobody sees that as a, uh, a, a form of worship. It's just what we do in the actual meal process. Now, that's not the case around the world. You know, over in the Middle East, a lot of times people eat with their hands instead. Um, and over in Asia, some uh, cultures use chopsticks. Others don't. Others use fork and knife. And so uh, the, the point here is that that's, that's more about a tradition. It's not necessarily about a deity. And the same would be said about the Roman Dapnon. So we see cross-cultural elements that happen no matter what religion you are. They're just part of, it's how you start out a meal. So you start by breaking bread, which is a Thanksgiving. Remember, no one was an atheist. There's no such thing in the ancient world as someone who didn't believe in God. Everybody believed in God. Whether it was the right God or the, or the wrong gods, it was people, people believed in something higher. So you would break the bread to thank God or the gods for the food, and you would dedicate a cup of wine, and you'd do that to show that this meal had ceremonial aspects to it, that it was more than just nourishment for your body. And so... Christ uses those and Paul uses those as well. They, they don't see these as pagan in any way, shape or form. Rob? Well, did you, the question is, did Jews just eat meals and then all of a sudden they saw these non-Jews be like, man, we got to up our game because we're not, <laughs> we're not pagans, but they dedicate, look at their devotion. Yeah, we got to exactly. up our game. So we up our devotion. So yeah, okay. So now, yeah, we our meals, every meal we eat also is is um, set apart in some special way unto our God. Is that how we're supposed to envision this? I don't think so. I don't think so. But there is back and forth. You know, it's the same thing with the development of the the immersion pools, the mikvaot over history. You know, there's there's development, and some of that is between you got to remember it's not always just jew versus gentile it's jewish group between between two different jewish groups that are have a little bit of hostility or competition between them 
Right. You're not doing, you know, how come your disciples didn't, aren't fasting when these other people are fasting? How come you guys didn't wash your hands? Like we wash our hands. Right. That's not Jew Gentile stuff. That's, that's zealotry. Um, they call that intra-Jewish zealotry, you know, and like, and then, and what they do is they refine. I mean, we've seen in, in the Hasidic communities, like what differentiates the Lubavitchers from the Gur, right? They're both come from Eastern Europe. They're both speak Yiddish. They both follow uh, lines of the Baal Shem Tov, you know, they're, they're right. not mit Nagdim, right? They're not the yeshivish uh, kind of traditions, but yet they differentiate between themselves in, in very precise ways to where by dress, by the, by the kippah, someone wears, how they wear the kippah, you know, what, what synagogue they'll go into and which one they won't go into, right? right. All these things to someone who's aware would be, is going to be able to quickly differentiate. And we're not talking about Jew and Gentile. We're talking about how this nature of humans to really specialize and refine their worldview and dif to differentiate themselves from others so they, they won't be mistaken with others. And this is part of the argument of why some think that the early believers in Yeshua were, were in the same communities as the Pharisees and they emerge in rabbinic world. And what the rabbis did halakhically was continue to, to add, like you can't have milk and meat on the table, right? Right. You can't, the, you can't buy meat from those people, right? All of a sudden there's economic ramifications. There's sociological ramifications to these rules. And these are right. man-made rules, mind you. And what happens is it keeps separating people out. Who are you going to listen to? Who's your authority? And uh, that's, so, that's just something we need to be aware of. It's a dynamic, a, a social dynamic. There is a book, and I've mentioned this book numerous of, numerous times. It's, it's called um, From Symposium to Eucharist. And um, I think that's it. By Dennis Smith. Anyway... Uh, Smith has passed on that's, now, but that's Mr. Smith to you. Yes. Smith is, is passed on. He passed away a couple years ago. Um, but his work was, is essentially the, the standard work now that is referenced when talking about meals and date nons in the, in the first century. And what he talks about is the various different forms of Roman date nons in the first century. And one of the things that he highlights is the philosophical meal. Basically, this is a time when uh, people would get together, everybody would eat, and then of course, so there was a, they would start the the meal with uh, breaking of bread. They would uh, uh, have a ceremonial cup of wine, and then they would eat their meal. There might be some other glasses of wine during that meal. Then at the end of the meal proper, they would uh, they would stop, and the servants would clear all the food, and they would dedicate another another cup of wine. This one usually unmixed. So normally the wine was mixed with water. This one was the unmixed wine at the table. And then somebody was, would give the philosophical exposition. And then this would be discussed or whatever. If we look at the, at the gospel account, right? What happens? Christ breaks the bread. He In Luke, there's two cups. There's one before the meal. He drinks the cup. And then it says, likewise, after the meal, he took the cup and he shares it with his disciples. 
But instead of dedicating it to God, who does he dedicate it to? Himself. Himself. Yeah. So this is a declaration of deity in and of itself. Christ is literally saying at this point when he says, do this in remembrance of me, I'm God. And then and then in John, what do we see? He gives an exposition for how many chapters? Like four or five chapters. So I see this as, as following the, the philosophical Dapnon, I mean, to a T. And once again, this has nothing to do with with pagan worship, this has to do more with uh, with just the way that that meals were conducted. It once again going back to like a marriage, you know, a a, a marriage ceremony in the U.S. today. Uh, I don't care what marriage ceremony you go to, ninety nine point nine nine percent of them, the bride and the groom, at some point are going to cut the cake or you know feed each other the uh, the cupcakes. One of the two, right? And uh, that's not pagan. It's just tradition within our culture. And so that's what I'd say about the same thing in, in, in the Roman culture. Okay, so going back. Uh, so one could then assume that if, the, uh, if he was working in a different culture, then the instruction Paul gave would be tailored to that culture's traditions and practices. What does this say in general about how to apply these instructions to other cultures? and other traditions. How far should we go to redirect cultural religious traditions and redirect them to Christ? And when should former traditions be discarded? I'm just bringing this up for discussion since I think these ideas come into scope. I don't now, think this, we is, should... this is the classic problem uh, in the missionary field and translation field. And, and one of the great go-to verses is, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. What if right. the culture, Sheleg in Hebrew is snow. What if you're going to a people that do not have snow as part of their culture? Like they don't have knowledge of snow. What do you do? And one, one approach is you need to find, you need to find something in their local culture, in their experience that accomplishes the poetry, the intent of the poetry or the parallelism in that case. Um, or the metaphor that accomplishes best in the estimation of the missionary slash translator. Sure. For the sake of communicating the, the, the meaning of the metaphor, not the literalness of the elements of the metaphor. And that that's to me, the same issue. I've thought to be honest with you, I've thought that, uh, this should actually encourage us as believers to view our meals much more in a form of worship, as a form of worship. In other words, the fact that uh, you know people in the first century saw their meals. In other words, I, we've we've made eating so common, right? We eat what two, three meals a day, four meals a day. You know how many snacks, whatever, and it's like it's just something that we do just because. But to be honest, we should probably see our meals as more of a form of worship to God who has given us the ability to break bread with other people. All right. Um, let's move on. I don't think you can hear it, but I think my daughter is singing uh, Let It Go outside my my, <laughs> my office door right now. Nice. All right. Yes. Uh, okay. Brandon writes in, why do we see believers in Christ who are baptized but the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. And it wasn't until John and Peter came and laid hands on them 
they did receive the Spirit. What do you believe the significance of this is? And he references Acts 8, 12 through 17. Let's read it. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, be, and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them, that they may receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he was not falling, fallen upon none of them. I don't know what translation this is, but I don't like it. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid, uh, then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, yeah, this is a great question. And this is a question that has been perplexing to a lot of people. And I would argue that this has been perplexing even to the, uh, to the modern day church as a whole. The reason why is because you're going to hear a lot of people within modern Christendom say that people did not receive the Holy Spirit or they were not filled with the Holy Spirit until the, the, until Acts 2, uh, when Pentecost happened. Uh, and I fully reject this uh, line of reasoning. I, I take Walter Kaiser. Walter Kaiser did a great paper on this. You can find it online for free. Um, I take his view on this, that the Holy Spirit was given all the way to anyone who was a believer, even Abraham. And we see this throughout the scriptures. Uh, Bezalel, Bezalel is, uh, given, yeah. Yeah, is given the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work of building the tabernacle. We see Elizabeth and Zacharias, Zachariah uh, in uh, Luke 1. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. This is before the, the event of Pentecost uh, in Acts 2. So the notion that a per... And uh, let's keep going. In Romans 8, Paul tells us that if you do not have the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of the Father, you can't be saved. And so the question is, does that include people before Christ came? And I think that it is not time bound. In other words, he and in that same book, he uses Abraham as the model of, of faith and salvation through faith and salvation, uh, well, salvation, basically someone being saved, justified, right, through their faith. And so... Uh, this brings the question then, okay, well, what's going on with not only Acts 8, but Acts 2? What's happening? So if I'll, I'll go first and then I'll shoot it over to you. I think that if we look at the uh, accounts within the scriptures, both from the First Testament and from the Apostolic Scriptures, there's two different kinds of filling of the Holy Spirit. So for instance, in Acts 8, if you if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. So that's one form of the of uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, you receive the Spirit of God in a salvation manner. But then there's the other kind of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Every time we see this form of being filled with the Holy Spirit, is it is to accomplish an act. So, for instance, the building of the tabernacle. Uh, David, King David, is filled with the Holy Spirit to become king and to rule as king. He says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Does this mean that he could lose his salvation? No, I think that this means that uh, the ability to rule as king or the kingdom would be taken away from him. Uh, and then we see the same thing happen in Acts 2. 
In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes along upon the believers to do what? To take the gospel to the nations. And throughout the book of Acts, I think that this is what's happening. I think that we see in the book of Acts, when people are saved, they are saved. And oftentimes they are filled with the Holy Spirit to do what? To take the gospel now to uh, their home or to their hometown or to their home country or whatever it may be. So I think that there's two filling of the Holy Spirit. Rob? Uh, regarding Acts 19 is the one we're talking about. It's actually Acts 8. <clears throat> but I mean, oh, the one where the idea is that people 8, 12, have heard yeah. of the Holy Spirit. Right. And then they're like, well, we had, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. Right. And so Paul then instructs them about to differentiate the baptism of John from... Right the baptism of Yeshua. Which is interesting because these guys are, they're, if I remember correctly, I don't have the text in front of me, but if, if I remember correctly, these guys are actually disciples of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist preached the that, that Christ would come and baptize in the Holy Spirit. So how did these guys not know, right? Yeah, there, there's a way of like, well, it, I could see it kind of, maybe it's similar to what you're saying, like with Acts 10, for example, Cornelius is demonstrably born again, but he has, he lacks knowledge. And so he has a vision, right? And, or he, you know, he gets visited by this angel in a vision and Peter simultaneously down in Joppa has this vision. And then Peter comes up and brings them like the word and it says while P peter in that case there's no touch there's no laying on in hands he just it says while he was speaking them to this message the holy spirit fell on them so there is this place where like a little plant that's growing it's got the little sprout right and that's what like cornelius was or like in acts 19 that's it's what they have is true they have genuine faith and they need to increase in wisdom and being equipped with proper knowledge and understanding for what for what's next now for now what they're going to be called to do right and so that's how i understand both acts 10 and acts 19 um now you could say well how come paul it was with when paul laid hands on him whereas with peter it was just while he was speaking i think i think luke is just showing that there's very that i don't think luke is trying to say with Paul, he had to put hands on, lay hands on people. I think we can find examples with Paul. I'd have to check where Paul's speaking and the, the Holy Spirit falls on them. Anyway, I, I haven't dug that deep into it because to me, it, it is just talking about God equips his people and it doesn't always happen all at once. But you could say, oh, well, these people weren't really saved then until this other thing. And I think that's that's silly. That, no, what we learn is that God equips his people. God calls his people. Right. He 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 justifies them and then he leads them on the path of sanctification. And they increase in their confidence, in their understanding of the word of God. Their, they understand their own specific giftings, how they are to um, serve the Lord in relationships. Right. We all grow on that trajectory and we become more and more fruitful. I think that these examples are just narrative examples of that unfolding 
that's my view. Right. Well, we have two things left. We only have time for one. So the question is, is I flip think, a coin, dude. Yeah. Somebody called in. I don't actually have it. Uh, I don't have it keyed up, but they said that they've been talking to somebody who is uh, challenging them on pre mill, uh, like a pre mill view of scripture. So for those who don't know, there's three, two main and then one outlier, but uh, pre mill believes that uh, Christ will come back before a literal thousand year millennium reign, or at least a millennium reign, whether or not it's an exact thousand years or not, that's to, that's neither here nor there. Post mill is the belief that uh, we are actually in a millennium now or the millennium now, and that uh, the the Great Commission will continue to uh, to happen until the the kingdom of God really is realized here on earth and then Christ will come and rule his kingdom and that it's after the millennium. And so when he comes, basically the way I understand it, at least right now, is that uh, when Christ comes, he will, that's when judgment will happen and then um, heaven, essentially. The question that was asked was, okay, what about like what scriptures would we use to show a pre-mill understanding of scripture? So I hold to pre-mill and I have not studied as probably as much as I should. However, the more I study about post-mill, the more I'm confused. And the reason why is because I agree that the, the, the millennium is only mentioned like the actual millennium itself. The thousand year reign is only mentioned once in Revelation in the, out of the entire scriptures. However, what we see throughout the prophets is that Christ will come and rule from Jerusalem and that there will be good and evil during that time. So, for instance, Zechariah 14, uh, all the nations go up to celebrate Sukkot. Um, but uh, if Egypt does not go up, then God will send a plague. Uh, you have people coming up again. You have the the Messiah coming, and uh, it seems like he's reigning on earth. And then you have Satan and his minions coming up against Christ, along with the Antichrist, right? And then he throws them into the pit. Um, you have a what seems to be a uh, a rule of the messiah or at least the prince whether or not you think that's christ or not okay uh in the temple in a rebuilt temple here on earth now i've heard i've i have studied some post mill on this and and what that is uh, what they believe is it, that's referring to michael says isaiah 2 isaiah 9 zechariah 14 yeah so I mean, throughout the prophets, we see that the Torah will go forth from Jerusalem. We see that the, the that the Messiah will reign from Jerusalem. And this seems to be in a time when evil still happens before everything is made right. Now, once the, the lamb will lie down with the lion and the child will play uh, near the, the cobra's, you know, hole or whatever it is, um, I think that that might be crossing over into when everything's made right. Because it doesn't seem like there's any evil at that point. So it seems to me like the prophetic texts show a time when Christ rules where there's still sin. And I don't think that that could happen if the judgment has already taken place. But then there's, uh, on the flip side, there's times when Christ is reigning and everything is made right. So I think that that would be like sin is no more. And I think that that would be after judgment. That's how I see those prophetic texts. And that's the reason that I'm pre-mill. Rob? 
Yeah, I kind of understand along the same way, but you know, honestly, it's above my pay grade. <laughs> like for me, like learning, what does it mean to love God with all my heart? Right. I mean, I, I, I have, that's a full-time job for me. And, and so this other, when it comes to eschatology, I remember in, in past versions of myself, I was like really into different things. And I, I, I just personally got to a point where it's like, you know, I, I just, I'm just spending all this time speculating. Sure. And I didn't see any fruit spiritually in my walk. And I, and I actually saw, you know, arguments with people and stuff. And I was like, you know, I don't, I just doesn't work for me, you know? And so for people who are, who have time to really study that and have, have mature, uh, mutually edifying conversations and increase in understanding of different viewpoints. I'm all, I'm a fan of that approach, but in terms of the topic, I just, I don't have anything to really contribute to the discussion. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing is that the more I learn about the covenants and the more I study Deuteronomy and just the whole idea of the various views of the covenant within the church, the more I am introduced to these different views. And the reason why is because some might not see those as correlating, but ultimately when we look at how the, how a specific church, so whether or not it's the Presbyterian church down the road or the Baptist church right around the corner for me, no matter how they view it, uh, how they view, let's put it another way depending on how they view the covenants is going to affect their eschatology. And so what I mean by that is that I agree that I think now that's something that I, I do think is helpful to, to have an idea of, of just the con, uh, go ahead, keep going. Yeah. Well, so for instance, within, uh, within dispensational theology, the, uh, the dispensationalists really want to give, uh, physical Israel, in other words, they, they look at the they look at the scriptures and they say, well, physical Israel has all these promises. How do we deal with that? And so they say, well, once the rapture happens, then God will fulfill those promises to physical Israel. Um, whereas covenant theology says, no, uh, God, I don't want I don't want to misrepresent, but the way I kind of see it, the way I see covenant theology is, no, God got mad at Israel for for disobeying too much. And so he he fulfilled those promises to physical Israel in, uh, with the people that he replaced Israel with, which is the church. In other words, he got a new people, which is the church, and now he's fulfilling those promises to those people. And so this is how you have kind of, and then th- those views and how Christians view physical Israel affects their eschatological views of post-mill, pre-mill, no matter what, I tend to agree with, or I tend to disagree with both of those, those views of the covenant. And so I think it's, uh, I think that actually this is, I think that the conversation of, of pre-mill, post-mill is actually important and it's going to become more and more important to me um, because of my discussions with people on how they view the covenants. And so I think that ultimately within the Torah movement or within Pronomian Christianity or whatever you want to say, this is something that I think we really have not settled on. I think that there hasn't been a, a strong showing of how, and to be honest with you, I think that this is probably the weakest point that we have right now, which is how do we see physical Israel 
And how do we see God's promises to physical Israel? And then how do we see the the believers fitting into that? And I think that there are people who are on the right trajectory to answer those questions really well. But we haven't had a, like a definitive work like, you know, for instance, my father hasn't written anything specifically on the covenants and how all of that works out. Although he has written a very good book, Fellow Heirs, which I think is starting to touch. It's skimming the surface of that of that study. I think that that is a great place to start, but I think more work needs to be done. And maybe a little bit of the, I will build my ecclesia as another, right. his introductory essay in there touches on covenant paralleled with kind of ecclesiology, which touches on like your point here of it, uh, inevitably in that conversation, eschatology comes up. Yeah. And then uh, the John 17 project says enlargement theology brings interesting questions to all of this. I agree. And I tend to lean towards what were what my father has called enlargement theology, which is one reason that I think uh, he those books that we mentioned actually are, are good places to start. However, there are some questions that I think have yet to be fully hashed out um, within enlargement theology. And I'm not saying that, th that it's wrong. What I'm saying is, is that we need to do um, more work to answer those questions definitively. And so we actually have an answer for those questions. All right. Hey, it's been a lot of fun, man. Chag Sameach, Chag Sameach to you. Let's see here. My I can't brother. even. Oh, that's why my keyboard stopped working halfway through this show. And to all y'all out there, Chag Sameach. I told you something. Feast. Something was going to go wrong during this show, and it did. All right. Hey, we'll be back next week, You're and a uh, hopefully, <laughs> no, I am not. No, no, I am not. Nor are you the son of a prophet. <laughs> exactly. I'm not a prophet. Nor the son. Exactly. All right. Well, we hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. Mm -hmm.